Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Gay With God podcast, a safe place for us to share our stories and support one another. How long did we know? What challenges did we face? Did we lose our faith? When did we find our way back home? Or are we still searching? The stories you hear on this podcast will melt your heart and strengthen your belief that in God, all things are possible and you can be authentically gay with the God of your understanding. I'm your host, Midge Noble, and I am very honored that you are here. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Gay With God podcast. Thank you for coming and sharing and subscribing. It really makes my heart soar when I see comments, so keep bringing those comments in. I have one very devoted friend who who makes a comment on everything. And I thank you, Tracy. I'm going to call you out because I thank you. You're just so uplifting and I appreciate it. So y'all get on the train and, and start making those comments because it really does help. It helps not only me, but it helps the the folks that come on the podcast to see that you're listening and that you're appreciating what we're sharing. So today I have a very important guest because this person is important to me. Um, she's a friend of mine. She's an author friend of mine. We had a wonderful time at the PYP author event in Connecticut this past month, I guess, last month, one of those months that was not now, mm-hmm. but before. <laughs> <laughs> And I don't know what time it is where y'all are listening, but um, it's late afternoon here and I'm just doing great. So I'm excited to have this person with me today because she has an interesting story to tell. And it's important that we hear everybody's points of view. And that's what we're doing today. We're going to hear Ellen Patnode's point of view. So Ellen has always been fascinated by how a person's nature and nurture combined causes them to interact with the people around them. She is a Detroit, Michigan native and graduated from Alma College with a BA in biology and French. She thought she wanted to be Jacques Cousteau. I probably got that right. I'm not sure. I'm not French and I took Spanish. But anyway, but her first few science-based jobs pointed clearly towards working with people. She worked for several years as a community organizer in Indiana and Ohio. Returning to Michigan in 2005, her reputation followed her for challenging people to see and be a better version of themselves. And the phone started ringing. Since then, Ellen has built an internationally recognized company supporting individuals, and teams and improving everyday important interactions. She recently published a new book, I Thought You Knew, Confessions of a Chronic Assumer and How to Stop Guessing Your Way Through Important Interactions. We'll put the links for that book in the show notes. Her company has recently been certified as an LGBTQ plus owned business. She is a credentialed PCC level executive coach from the International Coach Federation ICF and certified in multiple assessment tools. Ellen lives in mid-Michigan with her wife, Danny, at least one and has as many as three teenagers at any given time, three cats and a dog with way too much energy. And I love... (laughs) And I hope she won't be offended when I say this, <laughs> but I love that Danny spells her name the, uh, like my beloved Labrador retriever that I had for 12 years. And <laughs> also, that's the name <laughs> of the character in my first uh, one of my uh, children's books, Ice Cube Award. The character was named Danny, D-A-N-I. So that's just cool. Cool as we just have so many connections. We just keep finding them. I just love that. So, Ellen, welcome right. to the show. Thank you so much. It is such a pleasure to be here with you. 
Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm just excited about this conversation because your angst about coming on the show was that you don't have a faith that uh, that would be under the umbrella of gay with God. So what I'd like to do is just start with, have you ever had a faith? Um, how do you define your spirituality or your faith or your religion or whatever? Take me through that. Like, where did you start with? Did you start in a faith or without a faith? Take us through that journey first, and then let's talk about the other part. Sure. I'm happy to do that. So I come from kind of an interesting uh, start in life. My mother was Jewish. She was born into a fairly prominent Detroit Jewish family that had been established there for a few generations. And my grandfather came over from uh, Germany, escaping Nazi Germany, because one of his parents was Jewish and one was Lutheran. So he had the option of going into a concentration camp or joining the Nazi youth because it was his father that was Jewish. And anybody that knows Jewish tradition knows it passes through the maternal line. So he was not considered fully Jewish because it was his father that was Jewish, not his mother. So that's why he was given the choice. Well, my grandparents married, my mother was born. And as soon as my grandfather got his papers to be a citizen, he was uh, marched, he got his drafting papers and was drafted mm. into World War II. Mm. So he was sent back to fight against his own countrymen, Wow! which as you might imagine, was hard. Mm -hmm. um, he was injured in a battle over there. He ended up having to work in intelligence work and came home with pretty dramatic, P what we would now identify as PTSD. So he came home to my mother who had just turned five and did not recognize him. Mm. And my grandmother who'd always practiced Judaism and was part of this family. Um, and he came home so affected by the war that he forbade any form of religion being, being practiced in their home. So my mother didn't grow up going to temple. She did not have a bat mitzvah. She did not go through any of the rites of passage as a Jewish woman, but it was a part of her identity. And it was something that she claimed as part of her ethnic identity. So she married my father, who was a cradle Catholic. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, in 1967, when they got married, my mother was not allowed inside of the Catholic church as a Jewish woman. Wow. And so my parents were married on the steps of the bell tower of the Catholic church by a priest who had heard of Vatican II. And even though it wasn't being yet practiced in their little church was willing to marry the two of them. Mm -hmm. So right from the beginning, my parents were conflicted themselves about religion, I think. And they had an agreement. They had an agreement that, that um, my mother would be allowed to use birth control, which was not allowed in the Catholic Church wow. at the time. And in exchange, any children that they might have, my father was free to raise us in the Catholic tradition. Well, my dad was a cabinet maker and worked for um, a hospital in the carpenter shop for 30 years and always had a side business, building custom cabinets and doing custom kitchens for people. So he did not have time to make sure we were signed up for catechism classes or anything that would have formed my, my older brother and I in a faith tradition. 
we just kind of went on Easter and Christmas and my mother very vocally made sure we knew there were other options. Uh, and we didn't really grow up in any tradition. So in the neighborhood, there was this Presbyterian church that hosted a lot of community activities. And we both ended up going through youth group at the Presbyterian church. Alma college was a Presbyterian founded college, the college that I went to. Um, and, you know, I would say I sort of flirted with uh, Christianity during those years, high school and college, and even a bit after that. Certainly the work I did as a community organizer, it was doing faith-based community organizing. So even through my, my early, mid and late 20s, I was working in an environment where people from all different faith traditions were coming together to address issues in their communities that mattered to them. And I was really fascinated by all the different doctrinal differences and the ways in which these pastors and other faith leaders would come together around a table to address the issues that they had in common and they'd leave their doctrine at the door. They would simply meet at their point of common value and common self-interest to bring about change in their communities. And I found that to be incredibly powerful and coupled with the influence of my mother's voice in my head about, you know, the Catholic way is not the only way. I kind of just developed this belief that if there was a God, that that God was uh, probably female <laughs> and was definitely way bigger than would fit inside of any one of the distinctions uh, that were part of any, you know, individual denomination or individual faith tradition. I just felt like that, that story was too big to fit inside of any one of those, mm -hmm. especially coming from both a Jewish and a Christian background. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I baptized my children in a Presbyterian church. I, I attended a Presbyterian church for a while. Um, I certainly identify with the social justice mission of the Presbyterian church, but I you know, I don't consider myself Christian. I don't, I don't follow that story. I don't believe in that story. I believe in that story as a, a part of historical record, but I don't believe in that story as the narrative of how life should go. So, I mean, I would say that I, I don't, I don't participate in, nor do I really believe in any kind of structured, organized religion or doctrine, mm -hmm. but I believe in the power of people. And I remember hearing pastors talk about the way in which if we are made in God's image, as every part of credit of Christianity believes, then, then we uh, better act like it. Mm -hmm. And that you don't hear a lot of sermons about being powerful and, and acting in the name of social justice. You hear a lot of sermons about being humble and meek. And that was just something I could never reconcile. The hypocrisy inherent in a lot of mm -hmm. denominations was something I just couldn't reconcile. Mm -hmm. So I so I don't. I don't participate in it. But I'm a firm believer that the law of attraction exists, that um, karma and energy moves around in the universe. I believe sometimes things are just meant to be or not meant to be. Um, and I definitely believe in the power of people and community. And... I think that's, you know, from all of the teaching that I've been exposed to, that's a big part of what any faith tradition believes, at least in its purest form, that we have to be in community with each other. Mm -hmm. And 
that's where I put my energy is being in community with people who share my values and mm-hmm. looking for ways to kind of think about common humanity. Mm-hmm. So it's probably a super long-winded answer to your question, but there and we I are. And I thank you for that. <laughs> but see, that's what's so inter- <laughs> that's what's so interesting because I've always believed that doctrine and denominations were never intended by Jesus. Um, you know, whether Jesus is the Son of God or just a really great holy prophet, the point to me is that the greatest commandment was always love. Everything else, as my priest friend would say, is commentary, basically, or somebody famous said that. But um, I believe that love is the answer. And when we come on common ground in community, in love, and we love one another, that I love what you said about they just left all their differences and their doctrines at the door. And you don't see that anymore today. You don't see anybody leaving mm-hmm. anything at the door. We bring all of our baggage and all of our angst and all of our fears, and we stand on our pedestal and we won't get off. And we, and that's fear-based from my perspective is that we're all scared to death that if we don't keep in the cause of what we were taught, that we're going to be in trouble. And I think that's why I think that's why I'm an anomaly (laughs) because I don't fit in the, the strict doctrinal Christian tradition because they think I'm going to hell. And recently I was kicked out of an LGBTQ group because I brought God into it (laughs) and they didn't want that. And Mm -hmm. they were offended by that. And I'm like, okay, but I can't be in a group where I can't speak about me. And that's part of me, not that I'm preaching to anybody. I'm not here to change anybody because I love how we all have diversity. And that includes our faith. As long as we're based in love, I don't care how we identify because Jesus wasn't Christian either. So even though I identify as Christian, it's just because that's the way I was raised. And that's something I I am almost comfortable with. (laughs) But I want to have Mother Julie one time, a a person that came in and helped us out when our our priest was out sick, said, I want to get a T-shirt that on the front says, I am a Christian. And on the backside, it says the other kind. (laughs) Because because Christian has a bad bad, uh, rap right now. Christianity does. And um, and I understand why I don't like, I don't like the, the narrowness and the judgment and the hypocrisy. And I don't like any of that, but I also feel like you can be any faith and walk in love and, and be a powerful force in the universe. Yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I agree with that. And when I was, when I was a community organizer working with all these different um, leaders and pastors from all different faith traditions, some Christians, some not. Um, we talked a lot about the mentality of fear and scarcity mm-hmm. versus the mentality of hope and abundance. Mm. And even at a non-faith level, thinking about how we embrace in our lives and the way that we walk through life, how do we try every day to embrace a mentality of hope and abundance that that allows us to lean into the possibility that allows us to take a step out on faith that and and faith with a small f just the faith and belief mm-hmm. that you know mm-hmm. it's going to all work out how it's meant to um how do we put those things into practice in our daily lives in a way that 
not only improves our lives, but improves the lives of the people around us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all of that comes back to teachings of all the different prophets and all the mm-hmm. different religious figures that one might mm-hmm. look up to. So there's something that I find attractive about that idea, that idea that my mother used to say, you know, God is way too big to fit inside of either one of these religions in our household. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we just have to get, we just have to be okay with that. We have to be okay mm-hmm. with not having all the answers mm-hmm. and to accepting people who have a different spin on these things or a different understanding mm-hmm. of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the more comfortable and accepting we can be of that, um, the better off we're going to be, but you're right. Nobody leaves their doctrine or their beliefs or their politics out of anything anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's hugely damaging. I think we've mm-hmm. seen evidence of that in mm-hmm. recent history in our country, that it's just hugely damaging when we're not able to do that. The brewery that I love in town uh, has partnered with Rhino Leap. It's an organization that does plays and community theater here in town. I, I go there once a month and tell stories with anybody else who signs up. And last night, a lady stood up and she read a poem that she had written And it was all about trying to come together, but then she separated people who wanted to label themselves in a negative light. So she would say, like, if, if I labeled myself lesbian, then I'm being divisive and in a, in a, I'm trying to pigeonhole. And, and she got pretty um, confrontational in her reading about that on every level. And I thought about that because I, she said, I don't want to offend anybody. Well, you did. (laughs) <laughs> but here's the reason. The reason is because, and I, and my wife and I talked about it on the way home. And I said, you know, I, I said, I was really vibing with her poem at first because it really seemed like it was social justice oriented. And then it condemned people for being who they are trying to advocate for what they, they need. And unfortunately in our society, if we don't call ourselves out as a minority, we're not going to have a voice. So it's almost like we've been set up to pigeonhole ourselves and to identify as something and put ourselves in the box, which we wanted to come out of anyway. But if we don't stand on that box, then nobody's going to know we're here. We're going to be invisible. So that that balance of how how can I be visible? How can I stand in love and get my voice heard and get justice, get equity, get what I I need and what I expect, you know, so it's, it's a, it's a challenging time for all of us because you and I, you know, in the, in the skin that we're in, in the loves that we have in our lives, we can have that all taken away. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And it's, and it's a scary time to have children Mm. who fly under the rainbow flag as well. Yes. And watching them navigate this world and think about, what kind of a future they are going to have to reconcile with and navigate um, is absolutely truly terrifying at some points. Yeah, it is because we, you know, we have fought. I haven't fought as long as everybody else has because, you know, I came out so late. But, <laughs> but you know, when you think about, you know, since Stonewall, the fights, the deaths, the fear, the the imprisonment, all the things that people have gone through with Pray the Gay Away and conversion therapy. And we think about that back then and how how long they fought and how far we've come. 
to be married to our spouses, to have some sort of rights. But then when you look at the new Speaker of the House, who (laughs) hung us out there, I mean, pretty boldly, I mean, let's not try to guess what you think. I appreciate you being honest, you know, but then we look at these kids, your kids, everybody's kids who are just beginning to come through and have a generation that is so much more open and so much more aware than you and I ever were. And yet they may mm-hmm. have to go backwards and start over. What? That's right. lunacy. <laughs> yeah, it really is. And it's and it's terrifying. And yeah, I mean, the new speaker of the house is quite openly coming for gay marriage. And oh, so, absolutely. You know, we like, what, what does that mean for what we have to do with our spouses, with our legal spouses? What does yeah. that mean for what we're going to have to put in place to make sure those our wishes are respected to make sure that we can visit each other in the hospital and, you know, we had a situation when my youngest was six and in the hospital in an emergency situation where even though we thought we were signing all the right forms, it didn't matter. Mm. And they, uh, I got on an airplane and the, the decision had to be made to take the child into emergency surgery and they wouldn't do it till they could get me on the phone, even though I had signed the damn form mm. that they asked me to sign. So it just opens up all kinds of other other fear that uh, mm-hmm. of what can happen and extra mm-hmm. steps that we have to take to simply have uh, the same respect given to our relationships mm-hmm. that um that that straight people have and yeah it really is uh it really is kind of a depressing moment mm-hmm. to um to think about not what i mean i have two children who identify under the rainbow flag in one form mm-hmm. or another and to think about them navigating the world moving forward mm-hmm. is one you know set of fears but but just thinking about what my wife and I have and what we want to be able to protect in terms right. of our assets and our states and our wishes um you know it's yeah it's a it's a difficult moment right now mm-hmm. and then we go back to you know, hope and abundance. And I, I don't think anything can count out the power of hope and the power that people collectively can bring. So when you talk about community and you talk about coming together and all hoping for the same thing, it's going to take a little bit more than hope and prayers. It's going to take a whole lot of, <laughs> yeah. a whole lot of, a whole lot of, um, But hope is important because if we don't have an inkling of hope, we won't mobilize anything. But I was talking to a group the other day and they said, you know, it's going to take more than just talking about it. We're going to have to show up. We're going to have to show up at marches. We're going to have to show up with our legislatures and and our write-ins and getting editorials and newspapers. And we're going to have to put ourselves out there because the volume of voices that it's going to take to let this country know that this country would not be this country without all of us contributing. You know, when you think about it, if, (laughs) if we all left or if we all refused to do what we were doing now and did something else, I mean, there, there is a huge impact on the creativity of this nation, on the beauty of this nation, on the social justice of this nation. It just, we are everywhere and they just don't realize how big we really are because many of us are silent. Mm -hmm. And I respect that. And I also hope that whoever still has to be silent to protect their life 
will be doing something at the polls because the votes are what's going to make a difference in what happens next. We have to vote out the people who are not allowing all of the United States of America people have their equal and equitable rights. We have to vote. 100%. 100 Midge for president. <laughs> <laughs> That's the funniest thing anybody's ever said. Funnier than when they told me I should I should write a memoir. <laughs> this is way funnier than that. <laughs> well, yeah, I would I would uh, I appreciate that. And and yet I would be the worst president ever because I lead with my heart and not with my head and I don't understand any of the paperwork. <laughs> I don't- I don't understand any forms ever. I give it to my wife and then I say, tell me what it says. <laughs> Explain it to me, Lucy. <laughs> uh-huh. Because I don't I don't understand any of that. My my brain works in a whole different way. So we're talking about you having children and a spouse, and her name is Danny. So let's we're gonna we're gonna leave this social justice discussion in the in the place of hope and prayerful enforcement. <laughs> Because go. whoever you pray to, be it a tree, a god, a moon, or a star, <laughs> put it out there, and let's put the law of attraction out there. And we're gonna because I believe in the law of attraction too. And you put it out there, and you just keep visualizing it, feeling it as if it's already happened, and get that powerful visualization going. And let's bring us some justice, and let's bring us some leaders that can actually do something, and have have a Congress that can work together with someone whoever she may be (laughs) because the men the men really haven't been doing what we need them to do lately so i I need us to have a woman (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah i just want it to be somebody that is sane and loving and smart enough to get the job done here and across the seas however that needs to happen so let's go back in time (laughs) when you were a little girl being raised by these people. <laughs> mm-hmm. When did you know that you might not be straight? <laughs> <sighs> well, it's, it's, uh, it's, so what I can identify are moments of attraction to other girls, but I did not recognize that as meaning that I might be gay necessarily. I grew up in Detroit. I grew up in, in the city of Detroit and there were, in, and I was born in 1973. So, you know, 70s and 80s, I graduated from high school in 1991, just to give you a sense of the time frame. And during that time, there was a very active and visible male gay community in Detroit. And my parents were, um, were attached to it. My, um, we had several neighbors uh, on our block that were either single gay men or gay men couples. I used to regularly house sit for a gay couple down like three doors down from our house. Also the man who owned the flower shop where my parents met as teenagers um, was a gay man. And he was a part of our lives. He was always uncle Stan. And, and so I was around it all the time, but it was never something we just discussed. It just was, that's just Bill and Steve. They're coming for dinner tonight. And Uncle Stan is teaching a flower arranging class at the local community uh, church. I mean, it just was just was such a part of life, but we didn't talk about it. There was no 
conversation, it wasn't a secret. It just, it was just normal. It was just normal part of life. And, but I, I don't remember ever seeing or meeting or knowing of any lesbians during that time. I just knew that in second grade, I wanted to kiss Michelle Puckett's dimples more than I wanted to eat my sandwich. I just thought she was the cutest little thing. And, you know, there were other incidents like that throughout my school age years where I just was wildly attracted to another girl um, in a very physical way. But I just, I thought all girls were, I thought everyone was attracted to girls or women. I just, I thought everyone was, I mean, really, what is not to love? We smell better. We're soft. I mean, like there's just so many uh, boobs. I mean, there's just so many things to love, right? Yep. Sorry. Should I not say that? Yes. Um, But I, (laughs) so I knew that I was attracted to girls. I just didn't recognize it as, oh, that might mean that I'm gay. Although I did come across an old diary. And when I was I don't remember now if I was nine or if I was 12. I think I might have been. I don't remember if it was nine or 12. Mm -hmm. I wrote in there, am I gay? Which I thought was so interesting. I have no memory of writing about it. But I then proceeded to rationalize in my diary entry. No, you're just attracted to Stephanie and it's okay and it's normal and she's pretty and everyone thinks Stephanie is pretty, including all the boys. So it's just a normal thing for you to think that other girls are pretty. That's just normal. You're not gay. Isn't that interesting? That is I couldn't believe it when I came across that. That is funny. Yeah, no idea what it meant, but I just thought it was so interesting. So when I got to college, I that's when I became aware that maybe this might mean something about my mm-hmm. sexual orientation, mm-hmm. but I was terrified of disappointing my parents. Mm. Um, There was a very clear expectation that I was going to grow up and marry a nice boy and have babies and be a mom. Um, There's Mm -hmm. a super clear expectation of that. And I thought boys were easy. (laughs) (laughs) They just, they were just uncomplicated. And so, um, you know, it was, it was easy to attract them. It was easy to flirt with them. It was, you know, I flirted with girls and boys probably equally during that time, but just secretly was dying for physical interaction with Mm. a female. Mm. I pushed that shit way down as far Mm -hmm. as I could, because I I was terrified of the disappointment. I, I, um, I did in fact marry not one, but two boys. One just didn't work out very clearly, very quickly, but the second one is the father of my two children. And I'm grateful for that. Mm -hmm. We have two very well-planned children. Um, Thank God for ovulation kits. Because neither of us was particularly interested in the other one in a physical way, honestly, for for Mm. most of the relationship that we had. But we got along really well. It was easy. And so we made it work. And I'm grateful that I have my two boys. I love my two children dearly. Um, But uh, we were pretty miserable after the first one was born. We were pretty miserable, but we we pushed through and had that second one because we thought that fixed everything. Uh-huh. And I had a group of friends who were, who started, they were all young moms. We were in this mom's club together and they started playing soccer. They joined this women over 30 league in our community and invited me to come. And I was so miserable and eager to get away at any opportunity I could 
from home that um, I said, absolutely, yes. And I signed up with them and started playing soccer with them. And within the first few weeks of playing those games, I saw Danny. She was on a different team. She was playing on a different field, but I saw her. (laughs) And it was this, I am not kidding or exaggerating when I say it was this threshold moment those moments that you, once you have them, you cannot go back. Mm-hmm. I had a threshold religious experience on that field, nearly wet myself and thought, holy shit, I cannot run away from this anymore. That I am so attracted to that person over there that I don't know what I'm going to do with mm-hmm. myself. And I sat on it for like three weeks and made myself miserable and made myself ill. I dropped a bunch of weight. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I just, I didn't even know her name. I just knew that I was insanely attracted to this woman. And the path I had walked up to that moment made me realize, okay, it's time to quit running away from this. You just, you're going to make yourself miserable. So at the age of 35 with a two-year-old, and a four-year-old, I decided I needed to leave my marriage and come what may, let's see what happens. So I asked my then husband for a separation to which he immediately agreed and said, oh, thank God, I've just been waiting for you to be a, want to be a single mom. Peace <laughs> out. I'm going back to Chicago. <sighs> and, uh, and then I was on my own and then I was free to approach this this creature with whom I had over whom I had been obsessing. I'd found out what her name was. And, uh, and stalked I her. her. <laughs> I did. We absolutely stalked her. Yes. Yes. That's exactly what happened. And um, we had our first conversation and it just kind of spiraled from there. And uh, tomorrow we will celebrate 15 years of being ooh, together. Ooh, congratulations. I'm, as Thank you're talking, you. I'm imagining you being on this field. This is like a movie waiting to happen. So you're standing on this field and all time stops <laughs> and things are swirling yep. around you and you're locked in and you have a magnifying glass and you're drawing her to you from across the field. I can see it. Okay. So we'll work on that movie. <laughs> Who do we know? <laughs> Kim Clark has done movies. She's been on the on my show before. Wrote the forward to my book. We might need to get Kim involved. Love story of the ages. Okay. <laughs> the deal. The deal. I know Kim as well. Oh, cool. <laughs> so anyway, so you get you you find out her name. You have a conversation, and had she, I mean, how did that how did that move forward from there? I mean, you grew up in a family that embraced the gay people in the community, but they weren't their children. So how did that work? Oh, did you see that behind me? Wow. What is that? I sure did. I don't know, but it was pretty magical. (laughs) Okay, so folks, we just had this. I'm glad it wasn't just me hallucinating. Behind me, all of a sudden, whatever I said, I got like all of this. What was that? Fireworks? Fireworks. Behind me? Well, that that is so appropriate for what we're talking about. So the fireworks between you and Danny (laughs) are palpable in this podcast. Um, so how does yeah. that, how did that work with your family? Um, leave, leaving the husband, having two kids on your own. I can just hear a mother, yeah. especially from the oh. Jewish tra- tradition of 
we don't do these things. <laughs> we do not. We do not do these things. Yeah, it's so interesting. I, about six weeks uh, after my separation, I worked up the courage to have a conversation with my parents because um, I knew that uh, I was going to need to. And they could tell, they knew that I was, um, obviously they knew I was going through the separation. What they couldn't figure out is why I was not more upset and Uh why I was not more miserable. Uh And the reality was that uh, as soon as we separated, I had a conversation with Danny. And I mean, we, nothing happened for, you know, the first little while, but we'd had a conversation and that to me cemented things. And I was absolutely obsessed. I was lusting after her. And and so they couldn't figure out why I wasn't more upset and they were being suspicious. So I knew I was going to have to say something. Uh So I, I sat them down and I said, okay, listen, I, I need to talk to you. I need to share. Um, And my dad said, there's somebody else, isn't there? Uh And I said, yes, there is, but it's not who you'd expect. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I said, I've, I, I have pretty strong feelings developing for another woman. And my dad said, my cradle Catholic 65 year old father said, well, it's about damn time. Oh, really? And I said, what? And he said, girl, I have known since you were a little kid that you were gay. Wow. And I said, I, I don't, I, I was speechless for a moment, but that never lasts long with me. So I said, I don't, uh, how could you, how, what do you mean? How did you, how do you, how did you know? And he said the same way that you know about your now five-year-old son, uh, which is true because uh-huh. I absolutely knew that he was gay. In fact, his father and I had had conversations about it. Uh-huh. Well, nobody talked to Sam for more than five minutes without going, oh, yeah, that one's gay. <laughs> like he just was, we just knew. Everybody just knew. Your gaydar is going off even if you don't have gaydar. Right. So right. my father was like, yeah, I just knew because you're my child. That's how I knew. And I said, why didn't you ever say anything to me? And he, he laughed. He was like, seriously, have you met yourself? Nobody <laughs> can tell you anything. He said, you had to walk this road and figure this out for yourself. Yeah. No one was going to be able to tell you this. Mm-hmm. And through this, my mother is sitting there uncomfortable and silent mm-hmm. and definitely the more progressive of my two parents. So my dad's reaction caused this false hope and belief for me that she was going mm-hmm. to take it equally as well, uh-huh. but she did not mm. because my mother was, may she rest in peace, was um, a little bit of a narcissist and very, very consumed by what other people thought mm. and other people's opinions and appearances. And all she could think is, but you're straight. You've been married for seven years. You've had these two children. So she had a hard time wrapping her head around this. She mm-hmm. had a very traditional view of life mm-hmm. and relationships. You're either one or the other. It's black or it's white. And certainly there's no changing lanes in the middle of the road. And so she struggled with it for a while, but didn't say anything. And I remember a couple of weeks after that conversation, having a phone call with her 
And I don't remember why, but for some reason I referenced being a lesbian. Mm. And she suddenly screamed at me and said, do you have to carry a placard that says, I used to be straight, but now I'm gay? And I was like, well, first of all, if such a placard exists, please order me one. But second of all, I think you're being a little ridiculous, mom. This is who I've always been. Talk to dad. He knew. How did you not have conversations about this among each other? Mm-hmm. Like we talk about our children all the time. Mm-hmm. How could you not be talking about your children? Well, it was a different era. I don't think they talked yeah, about us they probably in that did. way. Not about that. Yeah. And I'm sure Certainly he never not. breathed a so, word, you know, to her about that because he knew your mother too. Definitely not. <laughs> and course, he didn't want to get Very it. much so. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. So it just was never a conversation that developed, but. I mean, she did come around, but I, I well, she came around and that's what mattered. She came around because there were a few of her friends, her contemporaries, and all of a sudden they had adult children coming out. Uh-huh. And one of whom was a, a neighbor down the road whose daughter also had been married and had a couple of children uh-huh. and was coming out. And so uh-huh. then suddenly it was like the cool kids club. Yeah. Right. We're the social justice. And so then parents. it was fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, and, and, and plus there's community. She needed community yeah. to feel safe. Yeah. She totally did. She did need community, but also, you know, Danny gets a lot of the credit too. So Danny is short for Danielle. That's why she spells it that way. D-A-N-I. Um, but she is my polar opposite. Sweet and nice are not usually two words that come to mind when people think about me. Um, <laughs> But they do when they think about Danny. Mm. She is um, very empathetic. She's very compassionate. She reads people really well. And she's very good at making them feel comfortable when they're uncomfortable. So she just very naturally set about winning my parents over, which was not hard for her to do. So my mother absolutely adored her uh, until the very end of her life. And, mm-hmm. um, and my father as well. My father still adores her. Pretty sure both of my parents loved me more than they love Danny, but I'm pretty sure they like her more than they like <laughs> me because she's just more likable. She's just easier to like, mm. but yeah. So she, she also had a lot to do with my mom coming around. I think well, that's sweet. I'm glad that she was able to be a buffer at times when you might have needed it. So how do you think people refer to you if not sweet and nice? Oh, I think they they recognize uh, my willingness to be brutally honest, mm-hmm. to not be afraid to say what other people might be thinking but don't mm-hmm. know how to find the words for. That's mm-hmm. my gift. My yeah. I I it took me a long time to embrace it, but I, I embrace it. I am I am absolutely the person who will call it like I see it. And I try very hard to do that with compassion and with mm-hmm. empathy, but there is very little that needs to be said that I won't say. Like very mm-hmm. little, because mm-hmm. that's just who it's just who I am. That's just mm-hmm. who I am in my nature. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that we need we need everybody. You know, there are people who never speak up, but they can fit in and get along, but nothing changes when you fit in and get along. We need them to buffer, but we need us (laughs) 
because I don't I don't hold my tongue much either, much to the dismay of my wife and sometimes my church mm-hmm. congregation, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, I, I I have to speak if I if, it because it almost feels like my head will explode if I don't. If I have something to offer, uh-huh. I need to have it said and I have to say it. Yeah. And I do try to lead 100%. with love, but <laughs> but sometimes you can't recognize it, I'm sure. <laughs> Yeah, hundred percent. That's uh, that's me to a T as well. And uh, Danny and your wife would probably yeah. find kindred spirits in each other as well. Yeah, I'm sure <laughs> we have we have other friends who we look at each other and say, "Oh, okay, so you're me in the relationship, and you're her, right?" <laughs> it's like, <laughs> subtract. I'm, it's like, yeah, if you put my friend Char and I together alone for very long, one of us will be in trouble. <laughs> so we need yeah. we need the spouses to kind of say run shotgun and say, girls, come here, come here. Don't say Mm -hmm. that out loud. (laughs) This is not the place to say it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, you have lived through a life of um, eggshells. It feels like sometimes that there were things that may not have been able to be said. Things couldn't be talked about openly, even though you had a lot of diversity around you. It was never talked about as far as exploring your own sexuality you know, being able to be open enough to to have a conversation with you early on about what what's going on, um, how how did that play into who you are now? Do you think being raised in a place where you might not have been able to be exactly who you needed to be early on? <laughs> oh, it's really uh, it has reared its head and continues to rear its head as um, you know, fighting against the question of. Uh, self-worth and, mm-hmm. you know, feeling like you're enough, mm-hmm. right? <clears throat> I'm just finishing the first draft of my next book, which is about the journey that we went on with my mother who suffered mm-hmm. from Lewy body dementia mm-hmm. and died after a very short battle with it. It was barely four years from the first signs to her death. Mm-hmm. And, um, we lived on quite the roller coaster during that time. And one of the themes, as I read over what I've written in this book, the themes that come up over and over again are just themes around feeling like I'm, I'm never enough, feeling like I wasn't worth it or wasn't enough. And I was talking to a friend who, whose own mother was fighting a losing battle with glioblastoma during a portion of the time that my mother was ill and we've known each other for many, many years. And so we talked on the phone often because he was, he and his partner moved across the country to caregive for his mom. My wife and I were caregiving for my mom in addition to my dad. And uh, we used to talk all the time and he would, he would get on me regularly about not doing enough for my own self care. Mm -hmm. And I told him recently after reading through what I'd written in this book, what's clear to me is that I I remember scoffing when he would say, what are you doing to take care of yourself? When is the last time you and Danny went out, went out together? And I would laugh and I would chalk it up to never having enough time. But the reality, as I'm writing these tips in every chapter of like things I wish I had done or things I Mm -hmm. wish I had known at this stage, Mm -hmm. what I'm recognizing painfully clearly is that I didn't think I was working hard enough. I didn't think I deserved self-care because 
my mother was constantly telling me or showing me in one way or another that I wasn't doing enough. I wasn't doing it right. I wasn't doing it enough. I was always trying to catch up. And it's a mentality that's pervasive. If I really want to be painfully honest and look around my life, I can see signs of it in my personal life. I can see signs of that in my business. Mm-hmm. I can see signs of it in the books that I've written. This, mm-hmm. this notion that we have to somehow earn mm-hmm. or be worthy of mm-hmm. um, taking care of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, and I think walking on eggshells and navigating these things as I had to do in my early life in particular is where a lot of my anger and frustration about that idea came from. And yet mm-hmm. it's still sunk in and grabbed hold of me. Mm-hmm. I was a very, very angry young woman through my teenage years and in my early 20s. Community organizing gave me such a great, a great outlet to express that anger as social justice. But the reality is that the sources of it absolutely came from feeling constantly like I just was never going to be enough. Right. And my mother reinforced that message all the way through her, the all the way through to the end of her life. Mm-hmm. Um, the last coherent conversation I had with her, she made a snide remark mm-hmm. about me to my brother. So like it just, so yeah, it's been a lifelong battle and I, it mm-hmm. shows up everywhere much to my dismay. Yeah. Which combines with what we were talking about before, as far as not being enough in this country, that we're still trying mm-hmm. to feel like we're that we deserve our own place with the heterosexuals. You know, it's like we're we're just not <laughs> able to have our place. <laughs> and and many of us come from either religious trauma or family trauma. And that stymies us when we're trying to politically stand up for ourselves because there is that nagging voice. Well, I shouldn't make a fuss or I shouldn't, you know, I'm not, I'm not worthy enough yet to be a part of the great United States of America and have equality. Bull crap, you know, but yet we know that in our head, but what's running behind are all those messages that we grew up with. So messaging you know, unworthiness and lack of respect for other people really does pivot them for a lifetime of swirling in that, you know, unworthiness and not feeling like they are enough. So we do have to be so, so careful, you know, one with raising children, but also just in anything, if you're a coach, if you're a teacher, if you're a youth minister, whoever you are, the words that we speak to each other can last an entire lifetime and beyond. So we have to be so careful. And what we say to ourselves, speaking about the law of attraction, if we're sending out messages to the universe that I'm not enough and I don't deserve it, the universe will completely appreciate that because it doesn't weigh it. Is it good or bad? It just brings us what we dwell on the most. So cleaning up our own karma around us and how we speak about ourselves, what we say about ourselves and how we set ourselves up for self-love. You know, whether we feel like we deserve it or not, we have to be able to attract back to us what we want to project out into the world. 100%. 
said it better myself. Oh my gosh. You know, we could just like be here for hours, but your kids are going to want the Wi-Fi back. And you said only an hour for them. And I'm afraid that you will have some kind of mutiny on your hands. So before we close, let's talk a little bit. Uh, give me a little bit of uh, information for uh, all of the folks listening today about your first book, the one that they actually can buy right now. And your other book, you will mm -hmm. come back to the Gay With God show and we will promote that one when you get it out there. But let's talk a little bit about your other book I thought you knew confessions of a chronic assumer uh, tell tell folks what it's about and and why it's so great I know why but you go ahead and tell <laughs> <laughs> so I thought you knew is a collection of I started noticing in 2020 when the world shut down and all of a sudden these teams of leaders and managers uh, that I had worked with in person in groups were now dispersed into their own private spaces. Um, assumptions really went why people were or were not responding to emails and how quickly and whether they were putting their cameras on or not. And things were being, there were so many assumptions being made that I found myself saying over and over again, is that, do you know that that's true? Do you mm -hmm. assume? So I started, I decided I had enough information, enough collection of stories about it. And um, there seemed to be some interest in this as a topic uh, to my own to my own circle of people. So I decided I was going to write a book about 10 different ways that assumptions show up and really interfere with or downright harm. And once I started writing, I realized I have a lifetime of, of getting this completely wrong. <laughs> so every chapter is like three stories of usually me getting this wrong. Here's another way you could think about doing this. And then nice. maybe some tips or ideas nice. of a different way you could do it. So it's an easy read. Uh, it's relatively entertaining. I like to think that I'm funny. <laughs> so <laughs> You are. You are. And uh, yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's meant to help you think differently about your interactions and pay attention into where assumptions show up because they really are so pervasive we don't even notice them half the time awesome awesome thank you and thank you for being here today it has been delightful because i love you and i just love spending time with you but thank you for sharing your story thank you so much for having me midge this has been such a great conversation and i can't wait to do it again so thank you yes yes i can't wait either so guys uh to get all the links that you can um reach out and connect with uh, Ellen for they will be on the show page. So will be the link to I thought you knew book. Um, and remember that as we're leaving today and, and leaving Ellen for a little bit of time, if you are ready to start your own faith journey, you can join the Gay With God Facebook group, My Faith Journey. And the, if you go to the Gay With God Facebook group, you're automatically able to get into the My Faith Journey. We're actually having one in a couple of weeks. So you have plenty of time to get hooked up with that. And I will be starting, instead of the Ask Me Anything groups that I was doing online to promote my memoir, I'm now doing the Gay With God Book Club group. So if you've gotten the book and you've read the book, come and join us uh, first at the Gay With God Facebook group, and you'll be able to have the links for the new Gay With God Book Club. So those are things I'm excited about. And as I set up more events, they will also be on my website, gaywithgod.com. I also want to remind you that if you are LGBTQ plus and you were raised in a conservative evangelical church, 
you may need to have the assistance of Keith Brown, who is a bisexual man, and after working on his own healing, as well as that of his clients for over 30 years, he has decided to take all his personal and professional experiences and put it into a digital course to help you. It's called Wipeout Trauma, and you can find the link to that 10-day journey to create a systematic and practical plan on the website at empoweredmidge.podbean.com. Keith also includes a forum community where you can ask questions, get support, and make connections with other students. It's an incredible course, and it's practical, and it's available now at a low price that you just won't believe. So find that link on the show page at empoweredmidge.podbean.com. And if you're seeking coaching for your coming out or faith journey and you would like to connect with me, you can also go to the gaywithgod.com website and find links on how to get in touch with me. So if you are listening to this podcast and you are questioning whether you can be gay and be in a relationship with the God of your understanding, if you identify as LGBTQIA+, or not even sure if you're gay, God has always been within you. Even if you didn't know it, you have always been gay with the God of your understanding. Thank you, everybody. Stay tuned and see how you can join the Gay With God community. And as always, you are loved. I want to invite you to become a part of the Gay With God community. How can you do that? Stay connected by messaging me your thoughts and comments in the comment section under the downloads of the show on the Gay With God show page. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen and share, share, share so we can increase our community outreach and be a light to those who are struggling to claim their faith. Consider being a sponsor so I can highlight your service in our community. We are all worthy of respect and a relationship with the God of our understanding. I want to thank you in advance for supporting this podcast. Together, we as a community will keep this show visible and our community stronger. Deep gratitude to my friend Tim McClendon of Tim McClendon Music for allowing me to use an excerpt from Interlude 4, a song found on his CD entitled Sundance.